And as they go, I'll read some of the big questions that people say top their list of questions in life. Starting with, will I ever be happy? What career path should I take? Who am I? Will I marry? If so, who will I marry? How long will I live? What will happen to my family when I'm gone? Will I ever be out of debt? And the list could go on of big questions. I thought there would maybe be some special list of the biggest questions, but there are all kinds of lists. But these are some of the big questions that we ask ourselves. But if a man or woman thinks long and hard and thoughtfully enough, which is a big assumption, eventually, eventually you'll ask yourself this question. You should ask yourself this question. If there is a God, then what does he require? If there is a God, then what does he expect? If there is a God, then what is my relationship to him like? I'm not suggesting everyone asks that question because not everyone is that thoughtful. And sometimes we're very numbed by the other things in life and the other questions. But it is a very, very important question to ask. What does this God, if there is a God, expect of me? I can't encourage you enough to stop and ask yourself that question. If there is a God, what's your relationship based upon? How can you have a relationship? What does he require of you? Let's put it in other stronger terms. What does he, if he's God after all, and you're, you're a creature, he's the creator, what does God demand of me? That's a fair question if we're talking about God. Well, what we'll do this morning is we'll look at a very concrete answer to that question, and then we'll look at some related questions. So we're going to look at five questions that are very important questions, but they all start with the most important question, what does this God require? What, what does he demand? And, and I can tell you right now that some of the questions are going to be unsettling, but it's going to end on a wonderfully settling high point. What does this God require? And thankfully, we're going to end by celebrating communion today, which will be very fitting because we'll end with the culmination of focusing on Christ as a great Redeemer. And so let's begin looking at these questions. And we'll be in Romans chapter, uh, we'll be in Romans primarily. I want to stay in Romans, but let's start in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, question number one, what does God require of me? What does God require of me? If you're new to the Bible and you're having a hard time finding Luke, you could just listen or maybe jot that down or look in the table of contents. But I want to have Jesus weigh in first. What does Jesus say to you and to me by way of application? What did he say when people asked him in effect, what does God require? Who better to consult than Jesus himself? And so let's jump into this dialogue that's going on here in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Seeking to answer the question, what does God require of us? It says in verse 25, and behold, a lawyer, not the way we would typically think, but as in as an expert in the Old Testament law. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, him being Jesus here, to the test, saying, 
teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Which is another way of saying, slightly different wording, another way of saying, what does God require? How how can I have life before this God? How can I have life with this God? What does God require? How can I have eternal life? It's the question of questions. And so let's see how Jesus answers. Verse 26 says, he said to him, what is written in the law? This guy's an expert in the law, so Jesus can just throw the ball back to him and say, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Not in some sort of postmodern way as, what's it mean to you? And that'll be fine, because it means something else to me. No, 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 this is so self-evident, this is so obvious that I'm just going to ask you the question now, and you're going to be able to answer this question. I know you're going to be able to answer the question. And so he does just that. Verse 27. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What does God ask of me? What does God demand of me? Well, Jesus tells us, Do this and you will live. Do what? He's summarizing the law of God. The law of God, as we're going to see, is that you should love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is a summary of the law. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 22. And we see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're about ready to see it in Romans. But just to sort of fix it in your mind, let's let those words of Jesus at the end there really rattle around in our minds. Notice what he says. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. We can even shorten it as some translations, I think, too. Do this and live. How many times do I have to say it to get it to meddle with your mind? Do this and live. That's what Jesus says. Do this and live. Do this and live. Do this and live. Do this and live. Got it or should I keep going? Do this and live. God, what does God require of us? Do this and And live. Do the law of God. And God will be happy. Love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's what God expects. That's what God expects of Pat Abendroth. That's what he expects of all of my children, my spouse. It's what he expects of you. It's the divine law. And the promise connected to the divine law is if you do this, you'll live. Now let's go to Romans. Now let's go to Romans. We, we, we've seen that pretty clearly. Um, now, and, and by the way, if this is all I know, and if I were seated right now, I'd, I'd, I'd be shrinking in my seat. I mean, if this is all you know, other than knowing yourself, and how good you've done at loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, if that's all you know, and you don't know anything else, you're just getting lower in your seat. God promises life if you keep his law. What does God require? Keep his law. Is what's happening. But make no mistake about it. We're going to see it elsewhere too. Romans chapter 2 verse 13. Romans 2.13 says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. Here's what I underlined. But the doers of the law who will be justified. 
How can I be justified? How can I, how can I be declared righteous? How can I be declared perfect in the eyes of God so that I'm acceptable by God? Be a doer of the law. And we already know what the law is. The law is summarized by love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And you'll be justified. Good news? We're going to get to that. That's, that's not good news. But please, please make no mistake about it. In no uncertain terms, it is what God requires. And if we don't get that, we're going to be very confused about that. And we're going to be very confused about the gospel. We're going to be very confused about Jesus and, and what he did and why he came and what he taught. God's demand upon your life as his creature is to love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And by the way, what is, it, what is he getting at by that? What he's getting at is treat me like I'm God. Give me all of your devotion. Give me all of your focus. Everything you do is for me ultimately. Treat me like I'm God. And don't treat yourself like you're God. Or others like their God. Now, let's go to one other passage regarding this, and that would be Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6 is the fifth book of the Old Testament, I believe. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And this is, the, this is where this comes from. So I wanted us to see it in the New Testament. I wanted us to see it in the Old Testament. This is God's trans-testamental requirement. This is what he always requires. Nothing new. And as you're turn, turning to Deuteronomy 6, just for good measure, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So as we're seeking to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, at what kind of level do we need to do that? Well, the same level that is true of God himself, who is perfect. And so, so do it perfectly. Shrink into my seat a little bit more. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The most famous Old Testament passage, if you're a Jewish person, probably maybe Genesis 1-1 is. But this, this is ranking right up there. There's only one God. Let's teach this to our children. That's the emphasis. Let's make this clear, fixed in our minds. There's only one God. And then, based upon that, there's a conclusion drawn in verse 5. You shall... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Notice there, there, there's a connection. Because there's only one God, give Him all of your devotion. It's a logical connection. If you are God and there's another God, then you can split it, split the difference. If there are many gods, then you can give your devotion to all the gods. If there's only one God... He gets all of your worship and all of your praise. Your boast is in Him and Him alone. Now, I want you to think carefully about Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 regarding this. Here's an important conclusion to draw. When it comes to God's standard of keeping His law, it will be in effect... As long as there is only one God. I realize this is thoughts in the deep end of the pool time. But just think about that. 
how, how long will God have the standard? Is God going to say, you know what? I used to say, love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You got to give me it all. You got to keep my law perfectly. Do this and live. I used to say that, but now I don't anymore. I've kind of relaxed. That can't be true unless there's no longer one God. As long as there's only one God, the standard for you and for me will be to keep His law perfectly, which is, in essence, loving Him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we've got to get it out of our minds that somehow, you know, in the Old Testament, He required law, and now that we're in New Testament times, He doesn't require law anymore. We just looked at the Old and New Testament, and I purposely gave you more New Testament than Old Testament. And you say, why is this such a big deal? This is a huge big deal because if we don't understand that God's standard never changes and it is always treat him like he's God and perfectly like he's God, giving him your all, there's no possible way that we really will understand who Jesus is. And your Jesus will be a different Jesus. And your gospel will be a different gospel. It'll be a pseudo gospel. What does God require? Ask the person on the street. They're either going to give sincerity. He knows my heart, which is a really bad idea. That's the problem. He knows our hearts. Read Jeremiah 17, 9. Or maybe, maybe, maybe they're going to say, love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength if they're semi-biblically literate. But if they give the second answer, they probably don't realize that that's a summation of the law. There's a lot lurking beneath the surface (laughs) as to what that means. It's kind of interesting. I've heard people say, well, you know, God used to say, you know, you have to keep my law, but now all we have to do is to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. All we have to do is love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. Hello? I am so slouching in my chair. I'm on the floor. That's the problem. I don't love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly with perfect motive, sincerity, to, to, to treat him, to, to, be, to be perfect like my heavenly father is perfect. This just doesn't happen. And then you introduce my neighbors into the equation and you can really see my failures, right? The requirement has always been the same and people aren't delighted by it. This is not a happy reality. I've got to do this and live. You've got to do this and live. Or or, or put it conversely, you won't live. Or you won't be justified. Because you're not a doer of the law. Now some of you at this point in time are thinking, now last week we were in Ecclesiastes and it was really dark and you said, next week I'll preach the gospel and it'll be happy. And you're going, that guy's got ADD so bad it's not even funny. Too much NutraSweet or something. We are going to get to the gospel. But if we don't understand this, it's going to be a different gospel than the gospel. So we got to to go to where it's dark before we go to where it's light. God's requirement has always been, always will be, as long as there's only one God, that you must Do the law perfectly, and then you'll be accepted. Huh. Now, just to tease this out, just to play, just to go a little bit further before we we go to the next question. This is an impossibility, but just just because I want you to get it. If it were possible for you to be forgiven of your not keeping the law of God, 
if it were possible for you to, to have your, all your offenses where you didn't do this to be wiped clean, if that were possible, apart from law-keeping, would God accept you? If you were forgiven, but not a law-keeper? Well, the answer is no. Because Romans chapter 2, verse 13 says... The doers of the law will be justified. It doesn't say the forgiven will be justified. We, we have to keep the law. The law must be kept. Forgiveness is vital, by the way. Talk about that all day long. Love forgiveness. But just to make the point here, it's not enough to be forgiven because that takes you to, to zero. You've done nothing wrong. But you've also done nothing right. If you have only forgiveness. Now, the Bible never says only forgiveness and doesn't do that, but I want you to see the idea and see the reality. God's requirement is not that you're forgiven, although that must happen too. God's requirement is you've got to be a law keeper. Do this and live. Now, to tease it out a little bit further, and this is an impossibility, what if you could have your sins atoned for, paid for, which, by the way, is the foundation for forgiveness? What if there could be atonement Does God accept you because your sins are atoned for? It's a hypothetical, I know. But when you read Romans chapter 2, verse 13, it says the doers of the law will be justified. Oh, yeah, your past offenses have been atoned for, but you still are at a zero balance. You got to do the law. Jesus says you have to do it perfectly. You say, why are you making such a big deal out of the law? Because Jesus does. Time and time again, when they say to Jesus, what's the most important thing in all of God's revelation? Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and live. You can't escape it. It's all over the place. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It's everywhere. And sometimes we try to get to the gospel apart from realizing you've got to have perfect law keeping. And you know what? Our gospel will not be the gospel. Now let's move to another question. It's not getting happy yet, by the way. But it's going to get so happy that we're going to want to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Question number two. Who will meet the requirement? Who will meet the requirement? Let me rephrase that. Who on earth meets this requirement? Let's still have it in Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. And this is after Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3. We've got the final nails in the, in the casket. Romans 3.10 is just a serious low point as it is written. Well, he's quoting Psalm 14. So again, it's trans-testamental. This is how it always is. None is righteous. None is just, in other words. None is perfect. And where you have righteousness, by the way, you have law. One assumes the other. You have justice. They're always in the same, um, same zip code, so to speak. None is righteous. No, not one. You know, to the heart. I'm not slouching in my chair anymore. I'm laying on the floor. If this is all I know. Romans chapter 1 would, would, would tell us that, that the reality is God revealed himself to us and we see what he's revealed and instead of worshiping him and bowing down to him and giving him love with heart, soul, mind and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves, we instead worship his creation 
And give it love, devotion, heart, soul, mind, and strength, including ourselves. And Romans 1 says, therefore, you're without excuse. That's unexcusable. There's only one God, and you should be giving him all of your, your God attention. So who on earth can do this? Well, nobody. Nobody does this. So it's really dark. Question number three. What's the righteous consequence for violating the divine law? What's the just consequence for violating the divine law? Verse 18 of chapter 5. And, I, and there's a whole lot there that's good news. We're only going to look at the bad news for now. Romans 5.18. What, 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 what's God's fair response to this? Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass, one sin violation, one violation against the law of God, he's using law terminology, led to condemnation for all men. And just for now, we need to stop there. Trespass condemnation. He's talking about Adam as our representative leading the human race into sin. And the sin is there against God's law. He didn't love God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And therefore, the just consequence for that is condemnation. Condemned. Condemned. Judgment resulting in condemnation. And again, this doesn't sound very gospel-ish. But if we really are going to understand the gospel, we've got to understand this too. This is God's requirement. Do this and live. No one does. Everyone is fairly, justly, righteously condemned. You're kind of getting the impression by now, I hope. Um, and by the way, Romans is about the gospel, but the author knows we'll never get the gospel unless we understand this stuff. You get the impression that maybe love isn't God's only attribute. But in order to understand his great love, we understand it against this kind of backdrop. We're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. I promise. Number four. This begs the next question. How then can God be the just and the justifier? And if that verbiage doesn't make sense to you, Romans 3.26 By the way, sermon title today, How in the World Can Romans 3.26 Be True? How, how, how could this be true? In light of the first three questions, how in the world could Romans 3.26 be true? Especially if you don't read the end. Let's just read the beginning, Romans 3.26. It was to show His righteousness, His justice, His fairness at the present time that is God's, so that He, God, might be just or righteous or fair, and the justifier. Now we're going to stop and not read the good part yet. How can he be the just and the justifier? How, how in the world could this be true? Think with me about that question. If God is the just, that means he's a, he's a righteous judge, he's a fair judge, and he is going to exact an appropriate penalty for violation against his law. Wages of sin is death, right? Condemnation, we just read it. So he's going to do that. He's got to do that or he won't be just. He won't be righteous. But then it says he's the justifier. He's, he declares people righteous. In the context would have us to know, he declares people righteous who aren't righteous. And I'm doing my best to try to see you through my contorted face how crazy this is. 
He, he's a righteous judge. He's going he, he's going to enact the appropriate punishment. There's going to be condemnation, but yet at the same time, those who should be condemned aren't condemned, and they're declared as if they're perfect law-abiding citizens, and they love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time, and they love their neighbors as themselves. He's treating us as if we do. What? Now, hypothetically, here's what should happen. What should happen, if only the first part is all we know, there should be a massive strike in heaven. Okay? All the angels who used to say, holy, 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 are now saying, nope. They're in picket lines. Regarding the fairness of the king. He's not fair. He's not just. He's not righteous. He's declaring rebels, lawbreakers, as if they're law keepers. Now that's hypothetical because that's not how it ends. But that's how it should be. We, we should read Romans 3.26 and go, what? Or, if we know the rest of it, we go, yeah, this is awesome. This is, this is the best. This is gospel truth. And the reason for that, we will see as we keep reading. Look at 26, how it ends. Let's read the whole thing. It was to show God's righteousness, his righteousness at the present time, so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, based upon all the things we've been learning, that, that's telling us something about Jesus and his relationship to the law. Something about Jesus and his relationship to loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. It has to be. And that's how the argument of Romans is playing itself out. Because he is the perfect law keeper, if we can have his perfect law keeping and his merits credited to us, his status credited to us better yet, then God can then declare us righteous even though we're not because someone actually is righteous who's standing in our place. Yes. This is, by the way, this is Christianity 101. Remember, Paul wrote Romans to relatively new Christians. And this isn't just a bunch of egghead theology kind of stuff. This is what, what goes down in deep if we allow it to. And it's what fuels the fire of praise and worship and adoration and living for the glory of Christ. This is why when you get to chapter 12, you're called to have your whole life be a response of passionate, worshipful praise to this great God who can be the just and the justifier. How in the world could that be done? For the one who has faith in Jesus, because Jesus is the righteous one. He's the perfect one who perfectly upheld the law. Listen, listen to this. It is because Jesus is the perfect law keeper as the last Adam. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 calls him. That God can be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I'm going to read that again. It is because Jesus is the perfect law keeper as the last Adam that God can be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Keep listening. Such law keeping is in both the positive upholding of the law, loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourselves, all the things the law requires, 
and the negative satisfying the just penalties of it. See both. See, if you don't keep the law, there are consequences like death. Jesus keeps the law and he pays the consequences, even though he himself shouldn't have to pay for the consequences, but he's doing it on our behalf. So he's fulfilling the law in its totality, in its fullness, because the law, again, has the positive commands. You must do this and live. But it also has condemnation if you don't. And Jesus takes care of both. Takes care of both. That's why we speak in terms of Jesus' life. Because he lived a life of obedience to the law of God, loving loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. We speak of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. All are important if we're going to have justification because God justifies the keepers of the law. And none of us are law keepers. But we have a great law keeper who we're trusting in and he keeps the law in its fullness, positively and negatively. Let's look at Romans 5.18 again now. Romans 5.18, we, we looked at it just a moment ago because it tells us something bad about condemnation for everyone. Now let's look at it. As we're, we're celebrating the greatness of Christ, let's see the contrast in Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass, that's law talk, violation of the law of God, one trespass, and that's by the first Adam, the representative of the human race, led to condemnation for all men. So it's just like that. There's a parallel. So one act of righteousness. Now we're talking about Jesus, the last Adam in the context. One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Context is all believing men. So you see the parallel between Adam and Jesus. The act of disobedience, unrighteousness, transgression, leading us down that road. And then we have the other act, the act by Jesus as our other representative. Lawbreaker, lawkeeper. We're trusting in the lawkeeper. Then we keep going in verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, disobedience in accordance to what? The will of God, the law of God. The many were made sinners so that by one man's obedience... Jesus, that is, talking about Jesus, the last Adam, the representative of all who would ever believe, the many will be made righteous. And to that, Christians for, for generations and generations have said, yes, Christ, our righteousness. Oh, Jesus is the one who through his obedience to the law of God allows us then, allows God, if you will, in his just system to declare sinners righteous even though they're not because there actually is one who is righteous. Which allows God to be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus who is the just, who is the righteous. I love this. It makes me love Christ the more I think about it and every time I think about it. I'm hoping the same is true of you as well. By the way, just a couple cross-references as we go. Matthew 5.17 is important regarding this. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's important. You want to get the gospel. You want to see the glory and the the riches and the magnitude of Jesus. 
don't think he came to get rid of the law. He came to fulfill the law. When I look to Jesus as my Savior, I look to one who actually, actually, personally did the law. And he did it on my behalf. He did love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. He did love his neighbor as himself, as well as all the other intricacies. And so I can know. By the way, if you don't, if you don't understand this, you're not going to have the kind of assurance you should have. I can be sure that God can justify me because it's based upon something real. Not based upon fiction. It's real. Real righteousness. Real law-keeping. Galatians 4.4 4 says Jesus was born under the law. There's a reason he's born under the law. Because he's going to fulfill the law. You can look at this from two different angles. You can say, well, let's look at it from the positive side. Let's look at it from the negative side. Or let's look at it from the negative side. Then the positive side. Well, it all ends up being inseparable. But for, for observation, you can say, well, well he, he bore our iniquities. Isaiah 53. Emphasizing more the negative aspect. Our violations. He took care of that. But at the same time, and that's, that's related to the law. Or you can say, you know what? He also, at the same time, did actively do all the right things. Let's go to, let's go to Matthew chapter 3 and, and see an example of that. A fascinating passage that probably deserves a little bit more pause than we would typically give it. We're usually moving our way. So usually what we're doing is we're, we're, we're giving glory to John the Baptist and what a great guy he is. Um, probably problematic, <laughs> uh, although he did, he did some good things. We're thankful for him as a divine prophet, but the emphasis is actually on Jesus. But regarding law-keeping, uh, this is an intriguing passage that deserves our attention. He can be the just and the justifier because Jesus is the law keeper. Jesus is the just. And Matthew 3.15 helps us to see this. Context is John the Baptist baptism. And uh, look at what it says in verse 15. But Jesus answered him, speaking of John the Baptist, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Well, you, can't, you can't divorce that all righteousness from the category of law. That's a law kind of word. So let's, let's put the narrative together. John the Baptist is, the, is God's prophet. And he says, repent. Repent of your sins. Savior's coming. Kingdom is at hand. Be baptized to show that you're repentant. Jesus shows up. He shows up for baptism. Well, baptism is for sinners, showing that they're earnest about some kind of preparation. Jesus shows up for baptism, and John the Baptist basically, you know, just to paraphrase, goes, I don't think so. Now, there's another line for you, it's over there, and you'll be the only one in that line. <laughs> the only person not fit for this is you. What are you doing? And Jesus shows up. And says, we'll do this. And we'll do this to fulfill all righteousness. We'll do this to fulfill the divine requirement. We'll do this to fulfill the divine standard. We'll do this to fulfill the divine law. That's why he uses the word righteousness. And I think it probably is best explained this way. 
God, through John the Baptist, his prophet, is calling the sinful nation and these sinful people to repent. And Jesus says, do, do this to me. He's the one that doesn't need to repent. He's identifying with sinners. As the last Adam, as our representative, he's going to do the right thing in all of his life, including this right thing that God is calling people to do. He's going to do it to fulfill all righteousness. This, by the way, is an important passage when we come to realize that it's not only the culminating, wonderful, amazing high point in Jesus' death that matters. It's also his living that matters because he came to fulfill all righteousness throughout his whole life. Suffered throughout his whole life, yes. Actively obeyed the law of God throughout his whole life, yes. When he went to the cross, he was obeying God there too and he was suffering there too. It's inseparable. It all goes together. Sometimes we look at it from two different angles. So when I read the gospel accounts, I think Jesus is marvelous from beginning to culminating end because he is my righteousness. He's the one I'm trusting in. And by the way, then, I just can't resist. You're getting more than the last hour got, so you should do a second offering later. (laughs) You know, even when you read the gospel accounts and you see Jesus is tempted and he doesn't succumb to the temptation... Fulfilling all righteousness. By the way, that looks a lot like someone else who was tempted and succumbed to the temptation. It's called the first Adam, our first representative. And you say, wow, this is interesting. That temptation account means so much more than how, to, how we can have a overcoming of temptation. Principles for us doing it. That might be true secondarily, way down here, thirdarily. The gospel narratives are accounts, first and foremost, of us seeing Jesus fulfilling all righteousness. We praise Him for that, right? That's what Christians do. And He becomes more magnificent the more we think about it and the more we pause to contemplate it. If Jesus is the perfect law keeper and His perfect righteousness is credited to me, I have assurance You can't take it away from me because, by the way, it's not even in me. Right now, it's seated at the right hand of the Father because that's where Jesus is. We learned about that in the book of Hebrews. That's how sure I am. But if he's not the law keeper, then how can I be justified? Apart from my own merits. How can I be sure? Well, God just says it's true, even though it's based upon nothing. That theological position has been attacked rather effectively. And it should be attacked. God doesn't just say you're justified based upon nothing, because he's in a good mood. He says you're justified because you're trusting in the one who's righteous, whose work is done. See, it is good gospel news. It's great gospel news. 
It's unmatched gospel news, but we don't understand it. We don't even begin to scratch the surface unless we're at least thinking in terms of God first, God's law, our law breaking, Christ's law keeping, and that perfect obedience, as we read in Romans 5.8, it even uses that wording, is credited to us by faith. And so God can then legitimately look at Pat Abendroth, a sinner, and say, I know it all. I know how sinful you are even more than you know how sinful you are. And I will declare you perfect even though you're not. How? And how can God do that? Just and justifier. Because of Christ. The just. The righteous. So good. So good. So basic. But so profound. Final question would be this. What makes this so important? I hope that's patently obvious by now. What makes this so important for us to talk about it again and again and again and again? What makes it so important is it's a gospel issue. It is a gospel issue. We really can't have justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone unless we have Christ's righteousness undergirding the whole thing. It can't be done. Let's look at it in those terms. Okay, here's this podium. Here's this, this lectern. Let's, the, the top is what Martin Luther said is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. You don't have to be a Lutheran to agree with him on that. What is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls? You don't even have a church if you don't have this. And that is the justification, being declared righteous, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the top of this podium, and I will go to the wall for that. Historically, we would as a church. That's right. That's right. That's what Romans teaches. That's what Ephesians teaches. It's got to be that way. Sinners are justified by faith in Christ and only by faith in Christ. That's gospel. What I want to suggest to you is something we assume a lot, and that is this stuff down here. This under... Neath, undercarriage. Never said that word in my life. Sounds good. This part here. The doctrine upon which the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone stands or falls is the doctrine of Christ's credited righteousness, Christ's imputed righteousness, Christ's law keeping on behalf of everyone who would ever believe. If we don't have Christ's righteousness through his life, death, and resurrection, we actually don't have this. We don't want to assume this down here. Got to know this down here. I get extra worked up because, by the way, if that's really true, by the way, historically it will be challenged and compromised. Nothing new under the sun. That's just how things work. And so it's been compromised. It's been challenged. It is always going to be and coming in different phases. Roman Catholicism is smart enough to know that they can't give this because if they do, then this will be true. So you can't have Christ's imputed righteousness according to his active and passive obedience because if you have that, then the Reformation is right. And you've got justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. 
This is historically Protestant. And we talk a lot about this up here, but sometimes we don't talk about the work of Christ in law-keeping. And, and we're letting our guard down sometimes. And plenty in our generation have compromised this, not just Rome. New perspectives on Paul. That movement rejects the imputation of Christ's active and passive obedience that we've been talking about. N.T. Wright rejects it. A very popular author you would find in your local Christian bookstore. Norman Shepard rejects it. Those involved in what's called federal vision is known to reject it. And sadly, those even that we would know we might consider in this camp up here are climbing on that sinking ship. The one thing all of those groups have in common, by the way, whether it's Rome, Norman Shepard, Federal Vision, New Perspectives, the one thing they have in common is they're rejecting the imputation of Christ's righteousness as seen in his active and passive obedience. It's time to understand these issues if we don't already and see they're really important Tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this on a more technical level. Tonight, we're going to talk about the history of the issue, theology of the issue, uh, who's wearing the jersey and who's not wearing the jersey, um, who has believed this historically, who's not believing it now, who's not believed it historically. And uh, it should be a great time. We're going to be together at 6 o'clock, but it's worth us looking at at a more technical level because nothing shy of the gospel is at stake. So it's worth talking about. Love to have you here at six o'clock. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning and for time together in your word. As we talk about Jesus, our righteousness, and we are grateful that we can celebrate the fact that his work is complete, that he came and he fulfilled the law perfectly, that we can have assurance of faith because of his completed work. We are grateful that he has taken our sins away by uh, dying a sinner's death. We are grateful that he, in everything that he did, fulfilled all righteousness, and our confidence can be in him. And now, Lord, we certainly have something to celebrate as we obey Jesus in taking bread and taking wine and eating and drinking in remembrance of him according to his perfect plan and will. May it be an act of celebration. May it be an act of exaltation as we would want to exalt the risen Christ in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.